as we're, as we're going through the foundations book and the material, uh, our goal is to be sharing the good news. And we won't do a lot of that this morning, uh, but, <coughs> excuse me, we want to get comfortable sharing and talking about those, those, those good news situations. What's the good news about the good news? Maybe you've had an opportunity this week to share the gospel and to talk with somebody. Make sure we share those with one another because that becomes an encouragement to know that, hey, I'm not the only one doing this. Sometimes we can get that Elijah syndrome where we feel like we are the only ones who are doing this. And God's like, you're not the only ones. There's, there's a lot of people out there who are doing that. And so as we, as we move into chapter 9 in our books, it's page 141 uh, for the Holy Spirit. Uh, the term that sometimes when you're reading in books and theological books that you'll come across is the word pneumatology. We get uh, words like pneumatic tools, like air-driven tools. Uh, that's all based around that, that Greek word, the, the study of the Holy Spirit, the pneumos, the, the spirit. So if you're coming across, if you're reading through and you come across this word pneumatology and you're like, what? Is, it sounds like rheumatology is an arthritis. Is it something like, what is this? That's what pneumatology is. It's the study of the Holy Spirit. So let's just dive in a little bit here and look at uh, the Holy Spirit and look at the theology of the Holy Spirit and how that impacts into our lives. And really, it's one of those, and we'll, t- we'll talk in a few moments, it's one of those doctrines that uh, it, it either gets abused or it tends to get undertreated as we talk about the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about the person of the Holy Spirit. When we look at the scriptures, they teach that, that the Holy Spirit is, the terms are co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father. We know Matthew 28. Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So you have all three members of the Godhead. There was not a beginning of one of them or two of them. God the Father did not create Jesus, and then they did not determine, oh, we need the Spirit, so we create the Spirit. All three of them are co-equal. They, they have the same authorities, though they're, they're equal in, in divineness. They're eternal. They are all, have always been. And they always will be. So one of them did not just start the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we're like, well, we don't really hear about a lot about him. Maybe he's a little bit lesser of the three. No, they're all, they're all co-equal. In Ephesians 4.30, when you, when you think about the personhood of the Spirit, the fact that the Holy Spirit is God, but there's a person to him. Notice what it says in Ephesians 4.30. It says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Notice that he can be grieved or pained by sin. We know that God is pained by our sin. There is a grief. There is a sorrow that comes. And so we see that, that personality trait of, of the Spirit. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, notice it says, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened under him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Notice, what do you see here highlighted in red? All three members of what? All three members of the Trinity present at this point. So it's not, sometimes we can think of, well, Maybe it's, it's God where God the Father wears a hat and then he takes off this hat and then he puts on another hat and then there's, he's Jesus and then God takes off that hat and puts on this hat and he's the Holy Spirit. That is not the case. All three members are, are separate and yet equal. And we have, that, we have that demonstrated here. 
So how does it prove that they're distinct? Notice that the Spirit was not in the passage. He was not Christ. Christ was the one there going through the baptism. God is the one, the voice from heaven, who is speaking. The Holy Spirit appears separately. So we can't follow the, the, it's called modalism. It's a term that, well, God just wears different hats at different times, but there's only one God. You know, that Jesus, Jesus is just God wearing a different hat. That's not the case. There are three unique individuals that are there, and we see that from this passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 3. What happens is we, we focus, and we, we do in our circles, tend to focus very much on God the Father, theology proper. We tend to focus a lot on Jesus Christ, Christology. And then what happens at times is we sort of don't talk about the other guy. We, we shy away at times. And sometimes he's referred to as the silent member of the Trinity. And that's not to say that he is any less than the Father or the Son. They are co-equal. It rather, it just means that he's not as prominent. We have that, we have that happen here with church. You know, we have, we have multiple pastors. And yet you don't always see, you see two or three of us often up here. Two others are often running around in the back of the building doing other stuff. It doesn't mean that, oh, if I stand up on this spot, I'm more prominent than the guy running around in the back. No, he's just, he's silent at that. He's doing other stuff that happens. Uh, granted, I know we're not gods and we're not, I'm not trying to make that equation. But just that, it, just because you don't see a prominence doesn't mean that they're not prominently working. And that's the Holy Spirit does that. He just is seeking not to, to gather all the attention to himself. He's looking to reflect. He's looking to... Uh, to, to draw, push glory to God. Kevin, can we turn the lights? Thank you. Uh, on up there. John, John 16 then goes on and he says, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, is come? What is he going to do? He's going to guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. So you, go ahead and answer this question. As you look at it, if you have it in your, your, your book there, you can fill it in. Because what I want you to understand, too, I didn't, I didn't put all the answers up right away. I want you to realize you can easily do this Bible study and not have to have in-depth theological training. Look at the passage. Look at the answers. And what it is is as you're helping somebody who's a new believer, somebody who's really just starting to learn, you, you can teach simple truths out of there. Who does, who does the Spirit glorify according to this passage? It's Jesus Christ, isn't it? He glorifies Christ, and what's he doing? He's teaching of him. He's, he's looking and saying, it's not about me. The Holy Spirit is saying, I want you to help. I want to help you learn of Christ. I want to help point you to Christ. And so he highlights that. And uh, it's just as a reminder for those uh, down in the bottom right corner, you'll, I tried to make sure all the numbers are right. But that's the page number in your book where the questions and all come from. So the silence of the Spirit, when it talks about that the Holy Spirit is a silent, more, more silent sometimes, or the silent member of the Trinity, it's not meaning that he's not important. It just means that he's seeking to glorify Christ, not himself. And really, isn't, isn't that a great lesson for us? Isn't that a great reminder of what we are to be about? It's not often we look and say, be like the Holy Spirit. You know, we talk about be like Christ. We talk about be holy like God is holy. But isn't this a great principle in our lives? 
And even as we're, we're discipling, we're mentoring somebody to say, hey, we, we can be like this. Our goal in life is not to bring glory to ourselves. Our goal in life is to bring glory to Christ, to teach of him and to, to point people to him and to teach others of who he is. And that's what we, we seek to, to do. So as we, as we talk more about, okay, the, the person of the Holy Spirit, he is, he is God. He might not be as prominent in all of the passages of Scripture and might be the one that sometimes you struggle understanding what he does. That's when we want to go through some of this. But he is prominent. He is God. And he, has, he is teaching and pointing us to Christ. The dangerous extremes we have is the overemphasis of the Holy Spirit. We see that in Pentecostalism. We see that in uh, the charismatic movement where all of a sudden what, what happened, I mean, the, the slain and the spirit things that we're going to handle snakes and we're going to, and the people are shaking and convulsing and dancing and running around and falling, falling over. And you're looking going, where, what is, what is all that? And so there's this extreme emphasis on, on being uh, totally filled with the spirit and, and going through that. Uh, it's interesting. There was a, I looked all over for the video, watched it a few years back, but there was a, they did interviews with, with teens and young adults who had uh, grown up in the, the Pentecostal and charismatic churches. And when they asked them about like, what, what brought this on? What, what led to you being slain in the spirit, you convulsing and dancing around? And the, the great majority of them just said it was happening and we felt like we did something spiritually that wasn't wrong. And so we wanted to be part of it and we didn't want to miss out. So we just acted the part because they were just like, well, that's just, you know, what everybody was doing, so we just did it. There was nothing that was spiritually motivating or driving. But I think what has happened, and, and has happened in uh, evangelical fundamental circles, is because we don't want to be identified with that, we've run to the other extreme of underemphasizing the Holy Spirit where we don't talk a lot about him, where we're just like, okay, yeah, he's, he's that other member, but let's talk about Christ and let's talk about God. And we can't do that because the Holy Spirit is God and the Holy, Holy Spirit does some amazing works in our lives. And as we look at what the Spirit does, we don't want to underemphasize. We don't want to just push him to the side. And, and thankfully, you know, we, we've tried not to do that here. We've, we've had classes on the Holy Spirit, trying to teach what the, what the Spirit does. So it's important for us, and it's important for a new believer to have a proper understanding of the Spirit, especially because they're going to see, they're going to hear about all these different things in different uh, churches that are, that are doing all these things with the Spirit. And how do you answer? Have you been baptized in the Spirit? That's a loaded question when you're talking to somebody who's charismatic. All of a sudden they're like, have you been baptized in the Spirit? My answer is, well, yes, I have. And they're going to say, well, when? Well, we'll talk about when. Okay, we'll, we'll do that in a second here. They'll, they'll ask, have you been filled with the Spirit? Well, yeah, I can be filled with the Spirit. According to the Word of God, I can be filled with the Spirit. I should be filled with the Spirit. Well, when did you do that? What was your experience? No, no, no. Let's take a step back. It's not necessarily an experiential thing. It is what is happening to us by the Spirit what we do so that we are filled with the Spirit. So let's, let's talk about it. And it's good for a new believer to have, to, to have some of those concrete, basic truths because you will see. Because there is a movement in America where people do talk about spiritual things and the, the ecstatic, the really, uh, 
I don't want to just use charismatic, but that, that idea of, wow, this is really amazing. Look at, the, look at how they, did you see they got filled with the Spirit? They started shaking. They fell. Man, that must have been an amazing experiential moment. I need that. Because we put a lot of experience in America, or we put a lot of validity in America on experience. And so we have to look and say, wait, how do we help a new believer understand what do some of these terms mean biblically? So that as they work through and they wade through some of the difficulties in life or the questions that they may arise or face, they know how to answer them. So let's look at the works of the Spirit. And really you can break it down into to three main, which is interesting because they're basically the same three. You can break down into what God has done, what Jesus Christ has done, what the Holy Spirit has done. They, they did works at creation. They did works to the unsaved. And they, the Holy Spirit works within the saved. Same thing. God the Father does the same thing. Jesus Christ has done the same thing because they're God. They have the same agenda. They have the same goals. They have the same directions. So as we look at the Holy Spirit, the works of creation, as, as we, we go on here on page 142 of the, of the notes, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we know the water, the earth was uh, without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, moved upon the face of the water. So what did God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, because we can go to all the different passages and talk about them working at creation, what did they accomplish? The creation of all matter. Living, non-living, they were involved in the process of creation. So the Holy Spirit is actively involved, was actively involved in, in creation. But let's look at, um, we won't focus on that per se, and the, the book doesn't as well. It focuses more on the works to the unsaved and then really a lot of the works to the saved because, again, what's part of the goal here? Part of the goal is you're a new believer or you're talking with a new believer and you're trying to help them understand what does this new relationship with God look like? What has happened to me? Why all of a sudden am I feeling a little bit different or not wanting to do this and this has changed or my thought on that has changed? What's happened to me? How do, how do I understand it a little bit more? So to the unsaved, what's one of the works of the Spirit is we, we've seen this. It's one of those obscure passages. Pastors preached on it a number of times where is the, the King James says, for the mystery of the iniquity does not all, doth already work. Only he who now lets will let until he be taken out of the way. And we've talked about numerous times and we're not going to go in depth here. Just want to give you some of those answers to help you understand it and to give it the word let, the idea of restrain. He's restraining. What is the Holy Spirit is doing to all of this world is restraining sin. And we look around and go, wow. I mean, after this week, and we see just how things unfold and how things rapidly change, and we see the potentials of atrocities that could happen, and we, we see the rampantness of sin in our society. I'm like, can you imagine what it would be like if the Holy Spirit was not suppressing some of that sin, restraining some of it, when that is taken away. That's why we look at the tribulation time and we're like, it is going to be a heinous time. It is going to be a grotesque time because the Holy Spirit is holding back the rampant nature of sin at this point. And he will continue to do so, as the, the passages in Thessalonians talk about, until the rapture of the church. And when part of, part of the, the aid, part of the helping to suppress sin is to be us, too. As we are living righteous and holy lives, as we are standing, as we are making influences, as we are helping to win other people to Christ, I mean, how, what's the best thing that we can do to help 
suppress sin. One is for us to be holy. Two is for us to help in the process of converting other people to Christ. Because as we help to disciple them, what do they start to focus more on? Christ. And then when you're focusing more on Christ and godliness and holiness, what do you, we know we still struggle with sin, but now sin has walked away from a little bit more. So as people, I mean, it, we, we talk about it in a, a, a practical way that, well, the biggest change that we can make is, is seeing people saved and being light to the, to the world. But this is the theological reasoning for it. Because as we see people saved, there is a natural tendency, a new creation, a new creature. Now there is a propensity for me, and I, now I have the ability to say no to sin and to say yes to Christ and to holiness. And that would have a great impact. If every, if every believing Christian in the world, in America, led one more person, how many more people? And then if they did the same thing, it could exponentially grow but sometimes we just, we don't have those opportunities or we don't look for those opportunities or we don't make it a priority. And we know that ultimately Christ is the one who saves and God is the one who works at that. But we have that, that responsibility to be faithful, to have that impact. It's the greatest impact that we can have on our society that is just spiraling out of control is to win one. To win one person and to disciple them in the holiness and the righteousness and the love of Christ and the teachings of Jesus Christ himself. And so the second ministry the Spirit has to the unsaved is you notice in John 16, verse 8. It says that when he, ascent, when he comes, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So what does the Holy Spirit reprove the world of? I mean, it's right there. Sin. Right. He's going to convict of the sinfulness. He's going to prove our need of righteousness, that we need this. And he's going to reprove the unrighteous through judgment. And so the Holy Spirit is declaring a guilty. He is the one who is convicting the Spirit. He is the one that as people are hearing the Word of God and presented with the Gospel, He's working to convict us of our sinfulness to the unsaved. Does He still do that with believers? Absolutely. But He does do that, that work in the ministry to the unsaved. So when we go, I, I, these are passages that personally encourage me. Because I get nervous when I'm going I'm to go to somebody who's not a believer and I'm going to look at them and say, you're living in sin, or this is sin, or you are a sinner, and that's probably the better way to go. You're a sinner just like me. We need Jesus Christ. Well, I don't even have to totally convince, convince them of sinfulness. The Holy Spirit is working on my behalf. He's the best teammate we have when we evangelize, when we share the gospel, because he's going with us, and he's, he's helping to prove our point to them. He's saying, hey, you are. He's, pro, he's, he's pricking the conscience. So as we highlight the different sins, or we talk about, you know, just going through the Ten Commandments, I, I like using that. Some, some do, some don't. I just like when I'm talking with somebody, and they're like, well, I'm not sure that I'm real. Can I just ask you about the Ten Commandments? You ever hear of them? Yeah. Okay. So the Bible says that if you break one of them, you're, you're a sinner. So let me ask you this. Have you ever told a lie? And they're like, but, but, the Ten Commandments say you shouldn't lie. Have you ever, you know, and you go right through. Have you ever dishonored your, your mother and your father, been disrespectful, rolled the eyes, you know, blown them off, maybe cursed them out? Well, I don't have to keep going because what's the Holy Spirit at that point starting to do? Biblically, the Holy Spirit's starting to convict of them. Now, they're going to they're gonna have to make a choice to 
push down the Holy Spirit to suppress him and to push that away or to open up and say, wait, I am that. And does that concern you? Well, yeah, that concerns me because what's the end of somebody who's not, not sin or who is a sinner? You're like, well, I don't know. Well, let, me, let me talk to you about that. Look at this verse in Romans. And you just start walking them through gently, respectfully, but yet directly and biblically. And the, the cool thing about it, the amazing thing is that the Holy Spirit's got your back. He's, he's right there, helping, prodding, convicting, and ultimately winning the argument. There's, there's no way around that. It's just whether or not that individual is going to suppress and push it away as Romans 1 talks about, or are they going to accept and move forward and realize, okay, now because I'm a sinner, I need to, to go forward with it. So what, is, what does the Holy Spirit then do in believers? Because that's where, and, and again, you're going to focus, and the, the purpose of the book is not to give you a full-blown doctrinal treatise. And I know that can be a critique of this foundation's material that we're choosing to use. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't cover everything. You're right, it doesn't. Because how many of you, after being saved 25 years, still look at the doctrine of the Trinity sometimes and you're like, I think I got it, but... Okay, so you're saved 24 hours. Let me tell you about the Trinity. The, you're not ready for that, at that as a new believer. This is just giving some of that material to help them drink milk to help strengthen them so that as they grow, they can start to mature and then get deeper and deeper into the meaty, weighty portions of the doctrines. And so that's, that is, it is written with purpose. So that's why in this section on the Holy Spirit, it doesn't cover every dynamic of the Holy Spirit. It focuses heavily on what does the Holy Spirit do for believers, what has happened to you when you got saved? Because that's, that's the purpose. So it talks about regeneration. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. John 3, 3, that Jesus is answering Nicodemus, remember? And he says, verily, I, I say to you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what picture does Jesus use to describe regeneration here in John 3? A new birth, right. It's, it's being born again, the second birth, a, a new. And I like to throw out all those different terms. Why would it be important to throw out all, those, all these different terms? A new birth, born again, a second birth. Why is that important to a new believer? What are they going to hear? We do, don't we? So all of a sudden we're up here preaching one week and we're talking about you need to be born again. You need to experience the new birth. You need to, you need to have a second birth. And they're like, well, wait, I got born again, but did I experience the second birth? Did I? And, and I'm guilty as a preacher. I'm guilty. I throw out terms all the time. Some of you looked at me after two weeks ago after uh, the first Peter message and you're like, man, you just plowed through that and you just rattled off all these terms. And I was like, uh... And I have to remember that too. Like I, I can do the exact same thing. So it is good to share some of those different terms, being born again, a new birth, being regenerated, a, a second birth, throwing that out to help your individual, your discipling, to understand some of those, those terminologies. So he goes on in John 3, 5, where Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit. So that, that comes up sometimes as, as we're going through, like, well, what does that mean? Very simply, born of the water is what? 
natural birth, yes, and then born of the Spirit is going to be our second birth, okay? He cannot, if you don't experience a second birth, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That's why it's called being born again. It's not that you have to, as Nicodemus says, enter back into your mother's womb. It is a spiritual rebirth, Titus 3.5 tells us. Not by works of righteousness, which we've done. So it's highlighting again. And always, when you're going through with individuals, we've already covered that. The first part, not by works of righteousness that we have done. We covered that way back in the salvation chapter. But isn't it good to remind them? See, hey, look, it says, it reminds us, it's not because we did anything good. It's not because we've been good enough. Why were we born again? Or how were we able to be born again? According to God's mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. So it teaches that the Holy Spirit is the agent. He's the one who scrubs us clean. He is the one who is rebirthing us, giving us a new birth or the term regeneration. So to to summarize it then, being regenerated is you were born once physically. If you have trusted Christ then you have been born spiritually. And we can go into the full doctrines of regeneration. But for a new believer, that's just a wonderful concept that there is a new creation, a new birth. Something is, is different here. So the Holy Spirit is the one who brought that spiritual life uh, to, to the place where there was spiritual death. He is the one who has rebirthed you. It's born of the Spirit. So he is the agent. He is the one who is helping to make that, uh, to accomplish your new birth. So the regeneration of the Spirit then is experienced permanently by every believer at the moment of salvation. You're going to hear that phrase a number of times, at the moment of salvation. It's not a process to being rebirthed. When a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when they repent of their sins, they turn, they trust, they put their faith in Jesus Christ, they are at that moment rebirthed. They are now, at that moment, regenerated by who? By the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's work in our life is that he regenerates us as a believer. He's helped us. And and they talk about, I think it's on 144. Yeah, 144. The math of regeneration. And this is just a a simple, simple illustration you can use to talk about. We all know that one plus one equals two, even though there are people who are trying to say that as a, for some reason that now is racist and that we're trying to get one plus one to equal three. And it's, it's I never knew math could be racist, but apparently now it is. Um, everything is racist anymore, by the way. So, but they're, they're trying to change the math. Now we're playing with, we're playing with terms here. Because one always equals one. But in this case, what he's talking about is the Bible clearly speaks of two births. We know that. We're, that's, we're, all, we're all on that same page. We have our one physical birth. We have our one spiritual birth. Born of water, born of spirit. Now, the spiritual death that the Bible talks about is that eternity in the lake of fire. That there will be an eternal separation. That is the final death. The, the death, death is not the end. Death is the beginning of our, what happens with our souls for eternity. And so we, we talk with individuals about that. So he talks about if you only have one birth, you will experience two deaths. You will experience your physical death, and you will experience that final death, that separation from, from God in all of eternity in the lake of fire, Revelation 20 and 21. If you experience two births, then you experience a physical death, and then you have eternal what? life. 
You know, when Alberta passed this morning at 1230, her body expired, the death occurred. But what began? Her eternal life. That is the hope. That is what we, that is what we rest upon. And the Spirit is the one who regenerates, who causes that to, to happen. So it's far better, they talk about, for you to have a second birth and a second death. So at this point, and by the time you're going through discipling somebody, if you've gotten to this point in the book with them, more than likely they're a believer. And they're like, well, yeah, I already understand that. But you can also help them to start looking and saying, and this is the long-term process of disciple-making. If, if, if I lead Lloyd to, to Christ, and he and I start going through this Bible study, one of the things that we want to do on a consistent basis is, being, is, is to be praying for individuals that Lloyd may know that I don't know that Lloyd could then lead to Christ and that he himself could disciple. So as we're praying about that on a consistent basis, we're, we're going through, and it might, this might be uh, you know, a year and a half into to studying the Bible with them. And you've enjoyed the time, but now we're praying for that individual, those individuals. Maybe there's five people that he's really burdened about. He's like, I just, I don't know how to explain to them the importance of being born again. Well, here, let me, let me give you a little math illustration. So now you take an illustration like this, and I say, hey, Lord, maybe you could talk to your, your friends about the math of regeneration, about the importance of being born again, and, and play, play with some terms with them and say, well, one always equals one, right? Well, not always. Let me tell you about what happens when a person who has one birth, why they experience two deaths, and a person who has two equals one. And it's just another way for you to start, for me to start helping him to learn how to talk to his friends, for him to be able to start evangelizing and discipling the people he's burdened for. Because that's, that's the long-term goal of biblical discipleship. It's not just that Lloyd and I become best buds for life and we don't talk to anybody else. It's that now I want him to be able to start discipling somebody else. And then long term, he wants his friend that he leads to Christ to be discipling somebody else. It's a biblical model, as we talked last week, of evangelism, of spreading the gospel. It's not just enough to say, hey, I got a couple notches in my belt back in 1985 and I'm done now. No, I'm supposed to be looking for those opportunities to, to be sharing the gospel. What else does the Holy Spirit do for us? The Holy Spirit baptizes us. Now, this is, this is one that as we go through, it's only a short section, but we'll, we'll dive in a little bit here. It's probably the most misunderstood of the, the Spirit's ministries in our life. In order to, to understand this, let's go through a couple passages. 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about, for by one Spirit, We've all been baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, uh, whether we be bond or free, and we have been all made to drink into one spirit. So according to, to this passage, how many of them have received the baptism of the spirit? It's, it's all. All these believers have been baptized, Jew, Greek, Gentile, male, female, uh, bond. The, that's a, that would be like a slave or somebody who's free. He says, all of us, no matter who we are that are saved, have been regenerated, have now been baptized into one body. The baptism of the Spirit. All Christians, this is important, all Christians have been baptized into the body by the Spirit of God. So the Spirit regenerates us, the he, uh, he regenerates us, He baptizes us, 
even Christians who are fleshly, go over to 1 Corinthians 3. Do you remember this passage? Where you look at, you look at the, when you think about Corinth, you, you usually don't think of, they're not necessarily the model. They're, they're not the church that you're like, all right, let's, let's, let's be like them. He says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual, but as unto carnal. But notice what he says. Highlight, underline that word, that third word in. And I, what does he call them? Brethren. What is the, the term brethren, what does that signify? What does that show? They're, they're Christians. There's a family. There's, there's a unit. There's a bond there. So you have Paul, righteous Paul, super spiritual guy, looking at this church that what we know about Corinth, there are some, there are some pretty nasty things going on in the church and them being okay with. We can go and dive into some of the later passages where the, 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 the rampant sexuality, the, the things that were happening. And yet he says, I should be able to speak to you as, as deeply spiritual people, but I have to speak to you as fleshly people. And yet he still calls them believers. He still calls them brethren. So when we talk about it, that word baptism, reminder back to like chapter two or three in the book, the English word baptism is a transliteration. It, they just took the Greek letters and they made an English word out of it uh, from the word baptism, which means, baptizo, which means to immerse. So we have been immersed in the spirit. Do not confuse water baptism and spirit baptism. They are two different entities, two different, two different beasts. The Bible teaches that at the moment of salvation, there it is again, at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit immersed us into Jesus Christ, into the body of Christ, like a cloth dipped in, in dye. Great, great illustration. You take a white cloth, dip it in, it is no longer white. It is permanently changed. That is what happens when we are immersed into Jesus Christ and into the body, there is a difference. We are a new creation. We are changed. It has happened. Water baptism is that decision that we make after salvation for following in the obedience of Christ. It pictures what happened at spirit baptism. It is an outward symbol of that. So when I get baptized, or when you were baptized, what you were picturing is, you, we, we often say it's a picture of our salvation. Well, it's picturing being immersed as well into Jesus Christ, into the body of Christ. It is, a, it is a picture that is used. So it pictures all of that, but they're not, they're not the same. And what, what has happened in our society as well is that this term comes up with, are you baptized? Well, yeah, I've been water baptized. Well, are you spirit baptized? For as many of you, Galatians says, have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Neither is there, again, Jew nor Greek, neither is there bond nor free, male nor female. All the things that could potentially cause division are put away in the body. There is a unity because we all have a common goal. We all have a, a, a standard that has been set. We've been immersed in the same. So since you've been baptized, it says here, into Christ by the Holy Spirit, then you are no longer merely a Jew or a Gentile. You are no longer just a man or a woman. I'm not making any political declarations there. I'm just, he's using a picture that's saying, hey, it's, it's a unity thing. He says, first and foremost, you are a Christian. 
And that is very important for us because that foundational principle that I am first and foremost a Christian should permeate a new believer's life as well as an old believer's life. That it's not my status or it's not my, my color, it's not my uh, abilities, it's not my heritage, it is, it's not my nationality. That is not first. We'll talk about it in a couple weeks in Peter here. I am not, I am not first and foremost an American. I am first and foremost a Christian. I am a capital C Christian, small A American, not a small, small C Christian, big A American. I am first and foremost a Christian, secondly an American. The, the, the picture that Paul is drawing here is, hey, there's a lot of differences, but in Christ we are unified. And the, the Spirit baptizes us into the body and into Jesus Christ together. Now, some churches will teach that you need to seek the baptism of the Spirit, that you need to, to seek this out and get this. You need to have this experience afterward. But the scriptures teach that you receive spiritual. It, it happens to you by an agent, by the Holy Spirit. It never gives us the command. It is never in a command. When the baptism of the Spirit, the term is used in scripture, there is never a command, you need to do this. Because it's not something that you need to do. It is something that is done to us. When we repent, when we get saved, so at that moment of salvation, the Spirit baptizes us, immerses us into Jesus Christ, immerses us into the body of Christ, that we are all, we can go to another church that teaches the gospel. You can go around the world and you can go meet with one of our missionaries and sit down with them and talk with them and have this amazing fellowship with believers who you can't even speak their language, but you have this wonderful fellowship. Why? because we've all been baptized into the body of Christ. We have all been baptized into Jesus Christ. We have this unity. We have this bond that the walls that everything sets up in our, in our societies have been torn down through Jesus Christ and through this baptism of the Spirit. So that's what the, the Spirit does to us. So the baptism of the Spirit is experienced permanently. It's, it's something that the, the, the Greek helps us with this. It's something that happened to us and it continues. It doesn't stop. It goes on and on through, through eternity. We have been baptized. We have experienced this permanently by every, every one of us who is saved at that moment of salvation. There's no need, biblically, to go seeking it out. So that's why when I've been asked uh, by, by individuals who are really big into you need to be baptized by the Spirit, you need to have this amazing work after you get saved to truly know that you are saved. They're like, well, when have you been baptized in the spirit, yes, I have. Oh, good, good, good. I'm glad. When, when did you do it? When I got saved. No, no, no. Did you, did you have it after that? I don't need to have it after that. Here's why. Let me show you these passages. And you can go to those, those different passages and talk about what the baptism of the, the spirit is. So the, 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 spirit, the spirit is very active with us when we get saved. I mean, he does a lot right away. He rebirths us. He's the agent in the rebirthing process. He baptizes us, and then he seals us. So First or Second Corinthians 1 says, who also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. So it talks about that all believers, all of us have been sealed with the Spirit. And notice he's not merely the sealer, he is the seal. 
He is the one. He has also sealed us, and he's given, and given us the what? The earnest of the Spirit. And other passages talk about that. He is the one who seals us. Like baptism of the Spirit, the sealing is done once, and it is done permanently. So all these things that the Spirit, and I, I love going through this portion of the, the book with, with new believers because it really emphasizes the divine aspect of eternal security. All the things that the Spirit did for me when I got saved, I didn't understand all of that. And a new believer, when they, when they got saved two years before you're at this point or a year before you're at this point in the book, all they knew is they were a sinner who needed Jesus Christ. They didn't know anything about all that, and I don't need to share all this with them. But now you're coming back and saying, hey, let me show you what God did. Look at what God did in your life. You didn't even, you just knew you needed to get saved because you had sin in your life and you didn't want to go to hell and you needed Jesus Christ. So you repented, you turned, and you got saved. But look at what God did to you. He rebirthed you. He baptized you. He has sealed you permanently at that moment. So when we talk about seals, what's the purpose of the seals? First, it shows the authenticity. Wow, that's really hard to say this morning. (coughs) Excuse me. Authenticity of the letter. Going back, there actually is a resurgence in this, which I think is really cool. Lots of people starting to send letters again and sealing them with wax seals. We've all all seen that. We've heard the illustration a number of times. But remember, and, and this is, again, goes back to we use terms a lot. We know the illustrations a lot. We can check out on those. We're all like, okay, yeah, we know seals. Yeah, we got the, the wax seal, pour it on. They got the stamp. That's the two paws. It stamps the type of the person into it. It is sealed. It's good. And we can, we can sort of look at that sometimes and check out on that. But remember, somebody's a new believer, completely new. There's a, a, group, of, uh, a group of some of our young ladies who they do a Bible study on a, a biweekly basis. And a number of them talked about a couple weeks ago, they had this, they, they were in the Bible study and one of, their, one of the ladies who's there is a newer believer. And they're just, they're just plowing through all these Bible study stories, like, oh, everybody knows this, everybody knows this. And refreshingly, the, the lady looks and goes, what do you mean? I don't know about that story. It's Cain and Abel. What do you mean you don't know about that? And, and all of a sudden, they got to start going through all these Bible stories. And they said it was one of the most refreshing times and they realize, wait, we can't always just assume that everybody knows everything that's, that's out there just because I've sat in the pew for 35, 40 years of my life and I know all of this and I remember it all. And that's the danger sometimes of trying to teach simple, simple doctrinal truths is we can check out because we've heard it for so long. And I think it's, it's super refreshing and super neat to be able to talk about some of the simple things. So remember this principle, even when you're going through the Bible study, you may, you may know it and it may be old hat to you, but hopefully for the new believer that you're going through, they're, they're excited. They're learning this stuff for the very first time. It's like, whoa, wait, you mean like the old seal that when they would pour the wax on, you might know that, but they need to, you need to go through. So what does that show? Remember that picture, that it shows that there was one true, true owner of the ring, and that, that owner would stamp his seal into the wax. It would seal the envelope. They would take it so that when the person who received it knew that it came with authority, the seal has not been tampered, it's not been broken, it came directly from that person who put the seal into it. And so it gave the authority, the ability, uh, the authority to the one who sealed the letter. This guaranteed that the letter came from the individual with the seal. And so Paul uses that picture to say, hey, when we got saved, we were sealed. 
And what was the seal? The seal is the Spirit, and the, the Spirit sealed us. So, and, and we can look at, well, it's just the Spirit. It's not God. Remember, God, the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit with authority, with righteous power, says, I am going to seal you, and I'm going to permanently put my stamp upon you as a, as a believer of Jesus Christ. The Spirit says itself, it bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So according to Romans 8, it says, how does the Holy Spirit pr- prove that you are a legitimate child of God? He himself is doing what? He's testifying of it. He's the one who, uh, I've got, again, he goes with me when I'm witnessing, but now he's going to stand and say, yes, I'm testifying that he's adopted, that Art is a child of God, that he is one of those born-again ones. He's testifying, bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Second, what does the seal do? It shows ownership of the object. The seal was not to be opened by any other person than whom it was intended for. When I got saved, when you got saved, we are now the child of God, and we are intended to be with God forever. That is, so I am sealed who is to be the one who opens, who unseals the letter? The one who's it's intended for. As a believer, where am I intended? For heaven, with God. When does that happen? The day of redem- my redemption, whether it's the day I pass or when the rapture occurs, then I am allowed to, and, it, and I am intended for, for God the Father, for Jesus, to be able to enter into heaven. Corinthians talks about now he which establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God who have also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. So according to this passage, God's given you the seal of the Spirit and thereby claims you. He claims you and I. We'll go back to that, sorry. Claims you as his own. What a security passage again. To look at a new believer and say, look at what just happened here. When you got saved a couple months ago, when you got saved 30 or 40 years ago, whatever it is for you, The Spirit sealed you, and you are intended for heaven. And you have and will be continually sealed and protected, and the Spirit is testifying of you as a believer because he has sealed you unto that day. It would render the object secure. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, the one who's sealing you, the one uh, who's doing that, but whereby, remember this, you are sealed unto the day of redemption. So how long are we going to, I mean, you're going through with a new believer. They can answer that question from that passage, right? How long are you going to be sealed? For Until that day. Until that day of redemption. When is that day going to be? It, the day of your death. When you, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. If the rapture occurs and God takes us home and calls home, says, hey, all my letters, you're coming with me. I'm going to, I'm going to open you and take you into heaven. We're all like, please, Lord, let's, let's have it. I don't want to have to deal with any more friends dying. I don't want to have to deal with any. Just take me home. Let's go. Let's, let's, let's head home. What a great reminder of our security. That's what, the, that's what the Spirit is doing in our lives. So you look at, those, look at those passages, and it's just, I think it's really neat. The day of redemption, the time when Christ will return for his people and take them to heaven. So the Spirit's going to be, and, and it's neat to say that too, because as believers pass away, the Holy Spirit doesn't go with the really righteous ones and, and leave the rest of us behind. It continues. 
the Holy Spirit, he continues to seal all of us until that day. When does this, the sealing work of the Spirit stop? It stops when Christ calls all of his home. So we know that then in the tribulation, remember, the Holy Spirit's going, we're going. At that moment during the tribulation, that's why it gets more rampant with sin. That's why it gets worse and worse because all of the restraining agents that are being used in this world right now to help suppress sin, are, they're gone. And so that day when that happens, by giving the Spirit as a seal, Christ is guaranteed that he will indeed claim you for his own when he returns. If you've trusted in Christ, you cannot and will not be lost. He goes on in Ephesians 4. Remember that it talks about the, to grieve the Spirit of God. In Ephesians 4.31, it gives you a list right afterwards the things that can grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, there are others, but Paul just flows, right? And he says, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, be all put away from you with all malice. What's interesting is that those terms are all words that have to deal with, in some way, shape, or form, our speech. The way we talk. The way we talk to each other. The way we talk to other people. That grieves our, our conversations, our vileness, our, our backbiting, our bitterness, our clamor, our, our wrath that comes out. Those, those, those ways, what we speak and use our words, that grieves the Spirit. It makes, it makes, this, makes, it makes God sad. It, it brings about that. So notice that although your sin, uh, although you sin, sorry, your, yeah, your sin grieves the Holy Spirit and hinders your fellowship with him, which we've talked about in the book earlier, my relationship does not change. It does not cause him to depart. Remember back to 1 Corinthians 3. They're still brethren. They're still believers. But it hinders our fellowship. It grieves him. But it does not cause me to lose my salvation because I've been sealed by the Spirit. He's still present there until that day of redemption. We have those purchase, uh, the, the fact here, he sealed us, and the, that term that comes up is the earnest. The earnest of our inheritance uh, until the redemption of the purchased possession. I remember the first time I had to buy a house, and I was asked about putting an earnest payment down. And like, I'm like, wait, you want me to give them money, but we're not even in negotiations and contract? Well, you do it. It's a good faith that say, I'm like, I don't want to give them money. I don't know who they are. And I remember it was Irene Temple, and she helped us with this. And she's like, no, that's, that's the, way, the way it works. But it's sort of like a down payment, but it's, it, Christ is, or the Spirit, excuse me, is called our earnest. It's that guarantee of purchase. So when, the, when Paul uses that, he's looking and saying, hey, when you got saved and you were sealed, you were given the earnest. God is looking and saying, it's legitimate. He can't lie. He's not going to make it. He makes this guarantee that the Spirit does not, remember, the Spirit cannot go to hell, does not go to hell. And so if we are sealed until that day when we enter into heaven, God's not going to lose us. God's not going to say, whoops, oh, got it wrong. Spirit's not going to say, oh, we are sealed. We are in earnest payment down to that moment. The sealing of the Spirit is experienced. Again, here it is. Permanently by every believer at the moment of salvation. And we're going we're gonna to stop here because we'll get into the, the indwellings a longer section. But Think about what the Spirit has done for us when we got saved and how you convey that and you can talk with new believers about that, that he rebirthed us, he regenerated, he's the agent in the rebirthing process. He has baptized us 
into one body. He has sealed us until that day of redemption. What great passage is on security? And again, not diving too deep in, but just some of the general principles that we'll pick up here with next week when we talk about the indwelling of the Spirit going forward.